Welcome to Real Britain, the podcast of my show on GB News. I'm Darren Grimes and you can catch me live every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 2 till 3. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up with the best bits here every week. So here we go. Let's talk about the issues that matter to you in Great Britain. Now, the scenes of women and children crossing the Ukrainian border to seek a new life as a refugee as their male loved ones kiss them goodbye to head back into their country to defend it from Russian tyranny have been ones that have moved many of us. The right of Ukraine to self-determination, to join whatever club it wants and to face westwards is one most of us reckon is worth defending. That's why our nation was the first to train up Ukrainian troops and to send equipment, something we ought to be immensely proud of. It's reminded me, though, that there's one constituent part of our United Kingdom that finds itself stripped of its right to self-determination, of its right to be British, of its right to unfettered trade with Great Britain, by far its biggest trading partner, of its right to have the same rules and regulations as the rest of the United Kingdom, and its right to experience the benefits of Brexit that the rest of the country are going to enjoy. That's right, folks. I was reminded of Northern Ireland and the dreaded Northern Ireland Protocol. Can you imagine for a second, just try and visualise this, if Scotland voted for independence and an independent Scotland told England that we had to follow EU rules to avoid a border with Scotland, we'd rightly be furious. It's an emotion felt by many unionists in Northern Ireland today. There's a great sense of bitter betrayal by those in Westminster. It's as simple as this, folks, right? A constituent part of the United Kingdom cannot remain a client state of Brussels. It's patently absurd that goods passing from England, Wales or Scotland are subject to checks when crossing to Northern Ireland. And guess what? It's all been policed by the European Court of Justice, based in Luxembourg. The, the devolved administration in Northern Ireland has actually collapsed over unionist demands to scrap the protocol, and government sources are reportedly starting to grow anxious about striking a deal with the EU over the protocol before the May 5th elections take place in Northern Ireland. Now, folks, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has been somewhat busy, I think it's fair to say. She's been dealing with the fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But the government simply cannot forget about Northern Ireland. I think the time has passed since the government ought to have triggered Article 16. That's the process to actually bring an end to Northern Ireland's suffering under this Brussels protocol. To give you an idea of the havoc that this protocol has actually caused... The Belfast Telegraph's Sam McBride reports that a month ago, a British, a Northern Irish lorry carrying New Zealand and Australian lamb was stopped at the Irish sea border in Belfast Harbour and the frozen food that was supposed to be used by a Northern Ireland manufacturer from this shipment and made into ready meals in NI instead sat there for five whopping days before heading back to Britain, obviously meaning Northern Ireland missed out. There's all of a sudden a hardening at the border that no official on either side wants to own up to, whether that be Northern Ireland, in Westminster, Whitehall or indeed in Brussels. 
But this obviously disadvantages Northern Ireland when producers and exporters reckon that they simply cannot do business with their Northern Ireland because of these ever-evolving rules and an ever-hardening border down the Irish Sea. What consent does this have from unionism in Northern Ireland? This is going to mean a hit to Northern Ireland jobs, to Northern Ireland's economy and to Northern Ireland's consumers. And what makes it all the more extraordinary is that the British government seemed to be absolutely none the wiser that this was ha actually taking place. Ministers in Northern Ireland also none the wiser. It could be the case that actually civil servants, extraordinarily, have been taken instruction from Brussels when it comes to enforcement of ever-changing rules around the governance of this dreaded protocol. Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol is that safeguarding mechanism that can be used if the protocol leads to, and this is a quote from the actual text, serious economic, societal or environmental difficulties that are liable to persist or to the diversion of trade. I think it's hard to argue that now isn't the time to utilise that article and to unshackle Northern Ireland from the regulatory quagmire that it actually finds itself in. But folks, we'll be hearing from a diverse set of views in Northern Ireland on this issue of power sharing and the protocol. As ever, please do let me know what you think. GBviews at gbnews.uk. It's now 2.11 and we're going to kickstart the show with a debate about whether or not power sharing is dead. It's what sets Northern Ireland's government apart from the UK's other devolved administrations. It means that in any government there must be representatives from both the nationalist community and unionists. This way it's hoped that both communities have a say in making the system and their democracy work. I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Jamie Bryson, who's a unionist activist and author of Brexit Betrayed, writings from the referendum to the Betrayal Act. And David Taylor, he's an Ulster unionist councillor for Newry and, and also from the Social Democratic and Labour Party councillor, Adam Gannon joins me on the show. Right, David, can I start with you, please? Do you reckon there's hope still for power sharing in Northern Ireland? Well, sorry, uh, listen, there's understandably genuine concerns within the unionist community regarding the, uh, regarding the protocol. And that obviously has put significant pressure on power sharing in Northern Ireland, given the decision by the, the DUP to remove their, the First Minister from position. But ultimately, I do believe, in terms of the greater long-term interests of unionism, that a stable, sustainable, devolved government in Northern Ireland is the best way of actually securing the long-term future of the union. So uh, whilst I have genuine concerns and strong concerns about the protocol and the impact that that's having, within Northern Ireland and within the unionist community. Uh, I ultimately believe that power sharing and the removal of power sharing is not the way of addressing the concerns that exist in, in respect of that. Uh, we believe that with it, in terms of the decision by the DEP, it's clear that it actually hasn't made any difference in terms of the government's approach to actually dealing with the protocol. It's clear that there's a, a need for intense negotiations between, between the UK government and the EU. And the EU need to 
now stand, stand up to their responsibilities. They have been reckless in regards to uh, the, the position of Northern Ireland and their intransigence in terms of dealing with the issue of the protocol. But ultimately, we believe in a period of intense negotiations and serious negotiations is a way of dealing with this rather than actually putting the, the long-term future of power sharing at risk. Yeah, Jamie, then, go, turning to you for a second, I'm actually confused by the position set out by some unionists because ultimately, if, if we actually say power sharing, let's pull it away, don't we just hand a massive amount of power to Boris Johnson, who betrayed Northern Ireland? Well, good afternoon, Darren. Um, well, the issue here is that uh, in 1998, when the unionist community signed up to the Belfast Agreement, it was the Ulster Unionist Party was... a uh, uh, David Taylor's party was the lead party in pro agreement unionism. Mm. And and the so, the sole basis of that, in the words of, of David Trimble at the time, was that the, the principle of consent would ensure that there was no change to the constitutional status of Northern Ireland, uh, save for the consent of the majority of people uh, living there. Uh, and he defined that as uh, the act of union, and a direct quote, he said, the act of union uh, is the union. Well, this week, the Court of Appeal in Northern Ireland made clear, uh, and this is their words, the act of union has been subjugated uh, by the protocol. Uh, Northern Ireland is more in the EU than the UK. That's a direct quote from Lord Justice McCluskey. And that the, princi the, the apparent principle of consent, which the Ulster Unionist Party told us was a safeguard, is more like a chocolate fire guard because it doesn't, in fact, uh, prevent uh, such constitutional change as the subjugation of the acts of union. Now, if that is the sole basis and was the sole basis uh, which allowed unionism to support the institutions, how on earth does any self-respecting unionist continue in those institutions when it has been shown very clearly uh, that, that it was a deceptive snare and unionism was fundamentally deceived. And just uh, finally on the point that you made in your introduction, uh, at the end of January, the democratically elected unionist minister, uh, Mr Edwin Putz, instructed officials uh, to halt checks at the Irish sea border. Officials defied the minister. They refused to uh, carry out that, that instruction. But yet, we, we now find out today via Sam McBride's reporting uh, that when the European Union instructed officials to increase checks, uh, they did so without any ministerial authority. And it seems we have some type of uh, constitutional coup uh, in Northern Ireland being waged uh, by civil servants. And that is an, an extraordinary uh, situation. Yeah, Adam, why should unionist communities have any faith in this process, given the fact that we are hearing reports of officials going with what the line of Brussels is? Firstly, we have to consider how we got here. And the first thing is that the people in Northern Ireland overwhelmingly and the people here are in favour of the well, businesses are in favour of the um, and the people I talk to every day uh, across uh, my constituency and from Anna and Safety Road protocol isn't what people are talking about is the cost of living crisis that we're in hospital waitlists yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on that point, as far as power sharing is concerned, Jamie, how would you go about ensuring instead that nationalist and unionist voices were, were given a, a voice in, in government in Northern Ireland? Well, there has to be a, a, a system of government which is inclusive for everybody, and the Belfast Agreement was, was purportedly based on a balance between unionist and nationalist communities, uh, and that balance was that North-South would be protected and East-West. What the protocol has done is it has demolished 
uh, east-west, it has subjugated uh, the union, subjugated the acts of union. That is what the Court of Appeal uh, has said. And the Belfast Agreement was also based upon the notion that key decisions were to be made with cross-community consent. But when it came to the protocol, and when it comes to the vote on the protocol, cross-community consent has been disapplied, has simply been taken out of the Belfast Agreement in order to neutralise unionists. So the Belfast Agreement has offered and does offer nothing to the, nothing to the unionist community. So if in order to have a stable uh, power-sharing government in Northern Ireland, there has to be a system of government which is fair to both sides and respects both sides of the community. And the Belfast Agreement does not do that. And I go back and I would like to hear what David Taylor has to say on that. The Ulster unionists sold the Belfast Agreement on the principle of consent. The principle of consent has been shown to be a fundamental deceit. What do the UP have to say about that? Well, yeah, David, you can answer that question. You can come back to that. But equally, I'd like to know, do you actually think that the unionist, uh, I guess, dismissal of the protocol outright and actually a loss of faith in the shared institutions outright, do you actually... Is this because unionism has had its day in Northern Ireland? Are unionists now becoming quite desperate because we're starting to see that Sinn Féin could hold a majority in Northern Ireland? No, ultimately, I, I think, Darren, that the clear majority of people in Northern Ireland wish to remain part of the United Kingdom. But there is no doubt, and, and in fact, my party was the first party out of all unionist parties involved to recognise the dangers associated with the protocol. Protocol, we've been stating from as far back as October 2019 about the dangers that this would place in terms of the constitutional integrity of Northern Ireland's position with the United Kingdom. So, you know, we were well aware of the dangers associated with this, and we warned the government not to sign up to a deal that was going to say place severe damage on Northern Ireland's economic position and the constitutional integrity of our position within the UK. So we are well aware of the dangers that were associated with the protocol. And we're also in a situation here where we're trying to find solutions to that uh, and serious solutions that will in, 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 in end up you know, securing the long-term future of uh, devolved institutions in Northern Ireland. Because as I've already said, ultimately, I believe that secures the long-term place of Northern Ireland's position within the United Kingdom. If we have a settled and sustainable devolved government, I believe that will increase support for the union in the long term, irrespective of what people's background may be. So there's a, there's a significant piece to work of work to do here. There's no doubt that the UK has caused severe damage in terms of their approach to this. They signed up to a deal that they should have been clear was going to cause damage to Northern Ireland's position within the UK. But there was almost an urgency on Boris Johnson's part to do a deal. And in doing that, he missed out on various issues that have caused the damage that we're now dealing with today. But ultimately, the EU needs to stand up their responsibilities too in this because they have been entrancing throughout this process and haven't faced up to the genuine unionist concerns that there are regarding the protocol. And it's not just about unionism. This damages everybody in society in Northern well, Ireland. Yeah, that was going to be my question to, you know, to Adam. Uh, irrespective of what background they come from, being affected by this protocol. Absolutely. Businesses are struggling, Adam. I know you're saying that you're not hearing it much on the doorstep from people out and about. But do you think that's going to change once it starts to be clear that businesses are just saying, let's not deal with Northern Ireland. It's too complicated. There's massive opportunity provided by the protocol to have uh, one foot in, in the EU market is very important and a massive opportunity for businesses here. That's what uh, people are saying. And we have to consider what Jamie mentioned there about consent. Brexit wasn't done with the consent of the people of Northern Ireland. There was no cross-community consent there. Uh, what did get cross-community consent uh, was the good agreement, which enshrines power sharing, uh, which is what we're, we're here to discuss discuss here today. And when you think about it, the, this whole DUP pointless, it's, it's a selfish political stunt 
uh, walking out of the executive simply because they weren't performing well in the polls. It's a political move. There's no substance to it. And what we need is we need constructive people who want to work together to resolve the issues. Now, the protocol is by no means perfect. We wanted, and my own party, the SDLP, wanted the closest possible relationship to the EU for not just Northern Ireland, but the entirety of the UK, because that is what the best deal was for us. You can't, and as has been proven by the numerous problems since Brexit occurred, having the closest possible relationship is the way forward, and the protocol protects people. I'm currently about 10, 15 miles from the border here in South Tyrone, between North and South. And what's the alternative to the protocol? Uh, I know Jamie would be very keen to have a hard border uh, along the island of Ireland, which would just be totally unsustainable. It would destroy communities uh, right across uh, many counties and across yeah. the whole border area. Yeah, we're day to day life involves crossing that border every, minute, every day. Absolutely. In, in one word, then, from each of you, do you think power sharing in NI has had its day, Jamie? Belfast Agreement power sharing has had its day. No self-respecting unionists continue with such a fundamental deceit. David? It's very hard to answer that question in one word. I think it's under <laughs> significant pressure, Darren. Uh, but I, as I've already said, I think in terms of uh, Northern Ireland's position, in terms of pro future prosperity and our position with the United Kingdom being sustained, I think it's vitally important that the evolution is protected in the long term. Adam? Power sharing, it has to continue. It's the only way this place will work. It has to be done to, to benefit everyone here. And uh, of course, if parties decide to throw the toys out of the pram and not uh, nominate for positions, um, I think you'll find the public will not uh, like that. And it'll be clear in this election, people will vote in their, in their droves for parties who want to work together and want to see uh, this place work and that support the protocol. Well, we will see. Thank you very well, much. Well, we will see. Thank Fascinating stuff. That was Jamie Bryson, a unionist activist and author of Brexit Betrayed, and Councillor David Taylor and Councillor Adam Gannon. Thank you very much to all three of them. Now, this week, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, spoke at a televised video conference. He accused the West of trying to split Russian and society and provoke civil confrontation. He also said that he wants to disarm and denazify Ukraine. It wasn't just what he said that caught my attention, folks, but actually the tone in which he said it. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Lawrence Bernstein, the director at Great Speech Writing, to analyse this speech. Lawrence, first of all, at a time of war, how do you actually deliver an effective speech to your nation? Do you think this was one that would have united Mother Russia behind President Putin? Good afternoon. I think, look, it's a very, very good question. And I think it's very easy to... To, to come up with sort of the one-stop shop answer to how you speak in any event. Clearly, Putin on one end, uh, taking part in the same war as Zelensky on the other, have completely different approaches, completely different styles. I guess it's very easy for us in the West to look on this as absolute absurdity and nonsense. Um, but there must be clearly some tactical thinking behind the way he's behaving generally, not least when he's speaking in public. A lot of people have criticised President Putin's actions here and said, well, they're so completely, you know, 
out of the question, extraordinary and all the rest of it, that he must be losing his mind. Does this speech, does the presentation of this speech, does this oratory give you the impression of a man who's losing his marbles? Look, with Putin, I think what we've probably got to do is compare Putin now to Putin a few weeks ago when he seemed much more composed and in control. There certainly are signs. He's, he's, he appears more intolerant than he's ever been. He appears more angry than he's ever been. He is stating fact in a way that people do often when they're under pressure. If you look at his face, and again, this, this isn't, I'm sure this isn't news to, to anybody who's watched him, it's getting puffier, his eyes are getting mm. narrower, um, his stare is getting more and more that of a maniac. So there are a number of signs, but again, I think we've just got to be slightly careful in that you and I, I don't think, are Putin's target audience. Um, and we may not be seeing things quite through the same eyes as his own audience inside Russia. Now, Lawrence, for those listening on radio who can't actually see the subtitles, uh, here's Putin actually talking about Russian people being able to distinguish the difference between patriots from traitors and scum. What do you make of this, of the tone used here? Because it strikes me as being cool as a cucumber whilst asserting these claims. Does that make a difference in, in this sort of, you know, being more aggressive and being more calm? How does this actually, do you think, come across? Look, the, the, the guy is a master of his own truth. I mean, if, 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 if listening to the, the entire speech, he also starts to talk about the Nazism of Ukraine. Um, he's talking about um, traitors from within, a fifth column of national traitors. I mean, the, the guy is paranoid mm. um, and he is using the language, which obviously is very redolent of Hitler in the, in the 1930s, at the same time accusing his neighboring country of being a Nazi state. So, so clearly, I do worry that we're trying to create rational analysis around a guy who is increasingly irrational, which is what's particularly petrifying about him and his behavior and the way he's speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, when you compare this, the speech that he's actually made, the last one that we just saw comments from there, to the, to the rally in Moscow, where you, it looks pretty impressive, right? It looks sort of, it's packed out, packed to the rafters. But there are reports that said that actually people were told, well, you can be off school if you come, you, you know, we'll bus you in. That sort of, uh, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, just stand and wave a flag. Apparently some people got checked, stamped, that they'd been there, then left straight away. There's some analysis suggesting that actually, you know, the whole thing was just completely staged, so to speak. Do you actually think that the cheering crowds, the music, were we seeing a different side to Putin or was this just performance? Theatre. It's, perform it's the performance of, a, of an autocrat. I mean, look, we, when it comes to this stuff, I think, you know, I'd, I'd love to think I had the answers to everything because I, I write and analyse speeches. Um, I, I think probably as relevant as anything is I was lucky enough to go to the World Cup in Russia three or four years ago and walked around the streets of Russia and met countless Russian people having drinks and coffees in, in, in places all, all around the, the west side of the country. And those are not people who would have been 
voluntarily going to that rally. I could tell you that much. Now, <laughs> when you read reports coming through Reuters, coming through the BBC, as you say, that, that state workers are being told they have to go there, school kids, college kids are being told they don't have to go to lectures to turn up. He surrounds himself with pop groups. I mean, again, it, it's authoritarian. It's In some ways, it's not unlike some of the feeds we see coming from North Korea. Um, but in a state that it wasn't that long ago that we were behaving with Russia as a, as a neighbour. We may have treated slightly cautiously, but who we were trading with and behaving with as if they were a, a relatively straightforward neighbour. It's an extraordinary turn. It is an extraordinary time, and I think, um, I think we're going to see more speeches than just that one, that's for sure. Lawrence Bernstein, <laughs> at the, the director at Great Speech Right, and thank you very much for your time this afternoon. As I say, the London Mayor Sadiq Khan has launched a campaign to challenge sexist attitudes and to urge men to take a stand against misogyny. He said primary school pupils who start school at four years old should be taught about misogyny as part of his campaign to implement change. Folks, I'm sure most of you agree that sexist attitudes and misogyny are wrong, but is this the right way to go about tackling the issue? Well, to speak more about this, I'm joined by Gareth Sturdy, a former teacher and education advisor, and Tony Breslin, who's the chair of Governors at Bushy Primary Education and author of Lessons from Lockdown. There are a fair few of those we could learn, I think. Gareth, can we start with you, please? Where do you actually stand on this? Um, well, I think that uh, lessons on misogyny for primary school pupils aren't aren't just a crazy idea they're actually quite dangerous because i think you know for both for both sexes for for boys uh they give the idea that somehow ordinary playground attitudes you know sometimes calling people names things like that uh is actually due, due to a far worse thing inside them like there's a sort of monster inside them waiting to break out you know which is just not not the case um but also how must it be for young girls to be thinking oh all the, you know all the boys in my class all the guys that i meet in the world are actually potential threats to me i think that is not a way to empower young women particularly at this really young age yeah gareth i couldn't agree more tony how do you feel about this Mytholo mythology going on here uh, i'm Chair of Governors uh, at an infant in a primary school, as you've said. I've worked in primary and secondary education throughout my career. I just simply don't find these cases. There may be one or two that make the headlines, but it's the responsibility of schools to offer a broad and balanced curriculum. It's also the responsibility of schools to ensure that, that children get key messages about what is right and what is wrong. Now, it's also the job of parents, but the truth is that not every child benefits from the same stability of family background. There are a whole range of things that actually schools level the playing field in for children. And I think we have much healthier attitudes towards, uh, towards girls, uh, between boys and girls, towards people of colour and so on today, as a result of quite a lot of the work that we would have called loony 20 years ago. Um, the world is changing. We have to ensure that our young people are ready 
and resilient to attitudes. We've seen some of the awful cases in the last year, and all we're doing is ensuring that children have that. That's not about lessons in misogyny, but it's about making sure that through our curriculum and so forth, we cover a range of experiences and a range of values. Well, um, but Tony, the idea that school, Tony, did you yeah. have that when you were at school? Did you have lessons on misogyny? No, I didn't. So I are you a misogynist? No, I'm not. But I'll tell you what... I See, it's as simple as that, isn't it? No, it's not. No, it's not. Let me finish, Darren. The fact of the matter is I grew up in a world where girls got far fewer opportunities than boys as a result of their education. So we have changed things and we are changing things. Of course, most children are not predisposed to these, to these views in the home and elsewhere, but occasionally where they emerge, it's absolutely right that they should be challenged in the school. But we're not talking about a whole curriculum dominated by this. We're just talking about drawing out themes that, you know, a lot of primary school reading, etc., is fundamentally this, moral about right and wrong. This, so, Gareth, yes. Yeah. No... This is what the mayor tried to do when he was interviewed about uh, the proposals. He tried to say, look, you know, this is just about people having respect for each other, people being nice to each other. But actually, if you go on the website, the Have a Word campaign, and you look mm. at the kind of things they're saying, um, they, they, they're talking about, you know, correcting problematic attitudes. They're talking about how name-calling in the playground can lead to misogyny later in life that we can be misogynistic without realizing you know all these things uh, uh, identifying phrases like drama queen or boys will be boys as misogynistic you know when you look at what the mayor is trying to do this is not simply teaching young people how to have respect for each other which schools have always done mm. this is about a particular type of ideology and the mayor is very keen on grabbing them young. He said this when he launched the campaign. He said, you know, we, to, to, to prevent cases later in life, we need to, to get them when they're young. That's not his exact words, but that's a close paraphrase. Yeah, which you know, I so, think, it, 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 absolutely. And we're moving far, much too far away, if you ask me, from the basic principles of what kids should be taught, right? Kids are far too often, I think, leaving schools without being equipped with the actual tools to go out there and make something of their lives. And far too often, I think, on the streets of London especially, kids are going out and stabbing each other on the streets, right? Never mind talking about these things like misogyny. And I think fundamentally, Gareth, you raised a really important point, which is that far too many kids are now being taught that society is fundamentally stacked against them. You've got young women who are going to grow up believing that the world is just inherently misogynistic. I'm sorry, but this is palpable nonsense, isn't it, Gareth? I mean, I... I... I think it's very, very dangerous. I think that the best way to empower women is to uh, get them to make the most of their own abilities and think, however, you know, whatever the world throws at me, I am going to be able to counter it. But telling them that the world is inherently dangerous is, is going to um, try and en enact violence against them in, in the kind of systematic way that the term misogyny implies. I just think that's very dangerous. And what's most concerning um, about this for me is that you know you, we we saw the reaction for example of london police to the sarah everard vigil not to mention the case of sarah everard herself right that that is a problem that the london mayor could tackle but he doesn't know how to 
So what does he do? He's essentially picking on primary school children. What on earth does he think he's doing? Tony, how do we make sure that this is age appropriate? Because it's, surely you would accept that starting with children as young as four is very young. Look, we teach children from the moment they walk through a school gate or a nursery gate between right and wrong. And right and wrong takes many guises. And nobody is talking here about... I mean, I'm not answerable for what the London mayor may or may not have said, and I'm not proposing, um, you know, the kind of uh, uh, scary scenario that Gareth talks about. I just don't see that. But what I do see is an education system today that is far more on it in terms of saying exactly what Gareth's been saying, saying to girls, saying to, to, to children from different backgrounds, you can make it too. Now, to actually, in a sense, a part of that is to make those children aware at some level that sometimes they might have to work a little bit harder, that sometimes they might need a bit more resilience. That's not telling them that that the girls that every male hates them. I don't think anybody, including the mayor, is proposing that. I'm certainly not. But what I want to ensure is that every child that passes through our school feels they're of equal value, feels they can get on and feels they're equipped but, to uh, do Tony, so. you mentioned and resilience it, there, building yeah. in resilience to our kids. I, if, yeah. if that was what we were talking about right now, that I is. would be stood shoulder to shoulder with you. I'd be saying, you know what, Tony, you bang on the money there. That's excellent. I hope all kids are being taught that. But that's not what's and, happening here. What kids are being told is that society is stacked against them, that we are no, all that, fundamentally no, that, no, misogynistic no, and that these kids need to be brought up not to be because their parents are, their grandparents are, when actually that's just risable nonsense. And this is a walk screen from the Mayor of London. Well, look, I'm saying that the scenario that you put out there is just not happening. I would agree with you in terms of if we were doing that kind of thing in schools, it wouldn't be right. But this is about ensuring that all of our children grow up with the belief that they can make it whatever position they're in, and it's our job as educators all right. to ensure that's the case. Brilliant, if we folks. look at the statistics... Thank you for, that's all we've got know, time for. Thank you very much for your others. time. That was Gareth Sturdy, you. former teacher and education advisor, and Tony Breslin, who is the chair of Governors at Bushy Primary Education. Joining me now is former Labour MP and independent peer, Kate Hoey. Kate, thank you very much for joining me now. Kate, could you just first of all give us a sort of brief outline of what this Northern Ireland protocol is and how it's causing so much havoc? Well, the Northern Ireland Protocol is part of the withdrawal agreement and it was brought in uh, and agreed to by Parliament, I think very reluctantly. I think a lot of MPs thought that it wasn't right. However, they wanted to get the uh, withdrawal agreement through and Brexit done. Uh, and there was always a feeling that what the protocol could be fixed afterwards. What it really does is actually makes, as far as we're concerned in Northern Ireland, Great Britain a third country because we have been left in the European Union uh, in, in, in its single market for almost all our trading arrangements, which means that every time the European Union makes a new rule in the future, we have to go along with it. And this has meant that they have introduced 
lots of ridiculous processes where goods coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland have to be checked, have to pay uh, a certification. Uh, and so a lot of businesses in Great Britain are saying, look, it's not worth our while sending to Northern Ireland. So we are now being treated extremely differently from the rest of the United Kingdom. In other words, we didn't leave. Brexit didn't, although we had the same ballot paper saying, do you want the United Kingdom to leave? Northern Ireland has basically stayed in. And even the Supreme Court just last week, where in, in the High Court in Belfast, where there was a legal action about the Act of Union, one of the justices said, Northern Ireland is now more in the European Union than in the United Kingdom. And of course, that raises the whole constitutional issue of how the Act of Union has been uh, broken and how the Belfast Agreement, which is where all the institutions were set up, like the Assembly, uh, have also now been broken. And we're in a situation where Liz Trust really needs to get on with doing what is in the protocol, which says that if there are problems economically, societally, and other, other, other ways, then Article 16 can be invoked and there has to be a complete look again at the protocol and how it's yes. working. Yeah, I mean, former Brexit Secretary Lord Frost has actually said that the poison, and that's his word, between the UK and the EU will actually remain if the protocol isn't renegotiated. But, Kate, what impetus is there for the EU to actually do this at this time? Because a lot of people are saying, well, hang on a minute, if we do this right now, we will damage relations between the United Kingdom and the EU at a time when Europe, as a continent, needs to be united behind the response to the Ukrainian people? Well, I actually think that it's a, a very important and good time to be invoking Article 16. I mean, the European Union is supposedly cares about what's happening in Ukraine. It's a, it's a horrific situation. It's brought uh, a lot of the EU countries, led by the UK, to do a lot of very, very good things. You know, the tiny problem of the European Union trying to protect its internal market, because that's what this is all about. They have, we have a border in Northern Ireland with a country, the Republic of Ireland, that will still be in the European Union. And therefore they want to protect anything coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland that might just happen to get over the border and go back into the EU. I mean, there's been some ridiculous examples of this where they wanted to stop certain types of sausages coming in, where olive oil wasn't... They were worried that olive oil was going to come from Great Britain to Northern yeah. Ireland and then somebody would take it over the border. All of this is ridiculous. And therefore, this is such a tiny aspect. And if, uh, th this is when the European Union should be saying, look, we've got a lot on our plate. This is just nonsense. And of course, we know why they don't want to do that. They're still trying to punish the United Kingdom for leaving. And that's yeah. as simple as that. And I'm afraid Liz Truss has promised uh, that Article 16 will be invoked. The government said a year ago the criteria had been met to invoke it. We really need to get on to this because I would say that things in Northern Ireland are very unstable. The elections are coming. There is very unlikely to be a, 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 an assembly again formed if the protocol uh, is still in place. We can't have the protocol and the Belfast Agreement. So it has to be one or the other. And I think most people realise that the Belfast Agreement is much more important than the protocol. 
Yes, I mean, a group of unionist politicians, as you well know, Kate, challenged the protocol in judicial review proceedings, claiming that actually it was Yes, I'm, I'm one of those, actually. I'm exactly, so you it. well know. But it, it, you actually argue in that judicial review that it conflicted with the 98, the, the Belfast Agreement, and, the act, and actually going a lot further back, the Acts of Union. But the court rejected that challenge on all grounds. So how can actually unionists sat there at home in NI today Kate, what can they actually do about this? Well, of course, we always saw the courts in Northern Ireland as the as the way to actually get to the Supreme Court. This is a United Kingdom issue. You know, it affects the whole of the United Kingdom, the fact that the union has, as the court said, it, it has been subjugated. But what it said, it was suspended. They were suspending that aspect of it. And, of course, the crucial thing about the Belfast Good Friday Agreement was the principle of consent that Northern Ireland would remain part of the United Kingdom until the people of Northern Ireland had decided otherwise. What we're seeing is a salami slicing of that relationship between Northern Ireland. And the, the, what the court said was that that really was fine. Go ahead and do that. That wasn't actually affecting the status of Northern Ireland as long as we weren't actually being handed over to the Republic of Ireland, which is a complete and utter nonsense and one that we will definitely be taking to the Supreme Court. But more importantly, if the principle of consent can go over something like this, and we, nobody in our Northern Ireland was asked did they want to keep the protocol uh, or did they want the protocol, then what else can be done? And every time something new comes from the European Union, we will have to comply with it. I think the government do know that this can't, it's not sustainable. It's just that they have to have the leadership and the courage to actually say to the European Union, nonsense this is, we've got to renegotiate this, we've got to get away that is normal and sensible and is not just punishing us because we chose to leave the European Union. Well, Kate, we'll have to get you back on to keep us up to date on that. Thank you very much. That was Kate Hoey, former Labour MP and now independent peer. Now on the Real Britain podcast that we'll have out tomorrow, we'll have lots more discussion about issues in Northern Ireland, so keep an eye out for that. You're with GB News on TV and DAB Radio. Now, we're looking today at the online safety bill which has been in the news last week, well, actually a lot longer than last week, but just last week it went through Parliament, and what the ins and outs are of this new online safety bill. Does this bill actually achieve some good, or will it cause more problems than it's worth? Joining me to discuss, I'm delighted to say, is Victoria Hewson, Head of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Darren. Now, Victoria, can I start by asking you, you've got some concerns about this bill, I think that's fair to say. Nadine Dorries, the Secretary of State at the Department for Culture and Media and Sport, she would argue that actually the internet right now is a wild west and all that the government are doing here is taming that wild beast to ensure that kids are safe online and you're safe from consumer fraud and things like that. Yes, the, the Wild West cliché, I'm afraid, is, is just incorrect. The Law Commission did a big piece of research on this. Uh, the very respected uh, independent body, the Law Commission specialist lawyers, did a big piece of work just a couple of years ago trying to assess the laws that apply in the offline world as against the laws that apply online. And they found that the laws are equally applicable online as offline. And in fact, if anything, uh, online world, social media, e-commerce is more heavily regulated already 
than um, sort of real world offline engagements. What this bill is all about really is that the government doesn't like what people are saying to each other on social media. It doesn't like some of the search results that people can find on social media and it wants to enlist the tech giants to act as the intermediaries of the government and the intermediaries of Ofcom to start filtering and censoring content. What I'm really worried about is the idea that what we're doing right now is saying to Nick Clegg now, you know, top cheese at Facebook, what we're saying is, here you are, matey, here's a load of um, excuses, really, to clamp down on speech that might be dissenting voices, it could be on lockdown, it could be on a whole host of issues, in the name of tackling so-called disinformation. Now, my disinformation is going to be somewhat different to what Nick Clegg deems to be disinformation, isn't it? Well, I think that's right. And in, in some ways, it's actually even more worrying than that, because a lot of these um, so-called harms are going to be defined by, by the minister, by the secretary of state in power at the time. And, you know, obviously at the moment, Nadine Dorries thinks that's great because it's her. But, you know, she's not, we, you know, conservatives or, or whoever you vote for, you're not always going to particularly agree with mm -hmm. what um, these particular politicians consider to be harmful at any one time, especially when it comes to things like misinformation. And you mentioned Nick Clegg there. I think the really interesting thing here is that, um, you know, we've talked a lot, I think a lot of the debate has been around Facebook posts and, and also private mm -hmm. messages are in scope for this, but also your search results, your Google search results are going to have to be censored by Google in order to essentially to protect themselves from being liable under this bill for fines or even from their managers being sent to prison. Now, you know, these tech giants are going to look after their own interests. And if that means they're going to have to filter and cut content from search results and monitor your private messages um, and, and censor your, your Facebook post in the middle of a discussion, they're going to do that to protect themselves and they're going to err on the side of caution to do so. Yes, and that raises the concerns by David Davis, who said actually that this bill risks free speech. Is this just a form of soft censorship and actually we're arming there could be indeed the Nadine Dorries, let's not forget, before she was Secretary of State, Nadine Dorries <laughs> liked to air her opinions on Twitter. Could this come back to bite her in the bottom? Well, quite frankly, Darren, I wouldn't even repeat on a family show the particular tweets by um, Ms Dorries that you're referring to. <laughs> um, so there is a certain amount of hypocrisy there. Um, you know, and, you know, the Secretary of State, the government, claimed that free speech, freedom of expression is protected explicitly under the bill. And there are indeed particular clauses in mm. there that talk about journalistic content being exempted, content of democratic importance, as they define it, being exempted uh, or protected, and some sort of rather soft duties to take freedom of expression into account by the platforms when they're doing this work that the government wants them to do. But for me, that's a tell by the government, the very fact that they have had to put special protections in place for journalism and content, political content of democratic importance, that's an admission that everything else is actually under threat here. Because if free speech wasn't under threat, they wouldn't have had to put special protections in place for particular classes. So what are these protections saying then? Are they saying that a journalist has a right to freedom of expression online, but your average Joe on Twitter or Facebook doesn't? Essentially, yes. Regulated journalism uh, which in itself is a rather worrying turn of events that this government was supposedly 
uh, opposed to, but they're actually bringing in press regulation by the back door here, um, will will be sort of have an elevated position with special rights and protections. And the average conversations by you and me and our average um, Google searches and, and, and web searches will not be given that special level of protection. So then we're to go back to that question I posed at the start there, are you saying scrap? Are you saying reform? Or are you saying keep? Presumably I, not keep. <laughs> definitely not keep. I'm saying scrap. The bill as it scrap. stands is going to be a disaster. It's 250 pages long. It's going to, the government even admits it's going to cost £2.5 billion to implement. Wow. 24,000 businesses are in scope of this, at least. They've got to scrap this. And How many them. hires at the regulator? Oh, Ofcom is going to be really empowered by this. Ofcom's building up a massive power base here uh, as, as the regulator of speech. Um, they will get to decide, actually, what counts as as due protection of free speech by the by the platforms here will all be in their codes of practice. We need to go back to uh, a, a kind of regime here that won't infantilize people, that won't embed fragility in the idea of harms and psychological harms and safety just because you've read something that upsets you. Yes. That all needs to go. But then what would you say, though, to the parts of the bill where people say, well, I am worried about what my child's seen on Instagram, on TikTok, things like that. I am worried about these fraudulent scams online because a lot of people are getting them and they're getting more and more complex, actually. They're getting quite believable. Do you actually think that those parts of the bill should remain? Uh, I, I don't really. Um, I think the... The, 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 this, the, the new laws about fraud and fraudulent adverts have clearly been added in last minute. The bill wasn't supposed to deal with that at all, but there's been lobbying and pressure from activists. So now that's been bunged in, in a way that remains to be seen how that's going to work. Um, there's already laws against fraud mm -hmm. and, you know, misleading advertising and, and so on. So I think as with a lot of this, um, there just needs to be better resourcing of the, of the investigation and enforcement of existing criminal offences, rather than manufacturing a whole load more new criminal offences um, that the police are already struggling to keep on top of what they've got. Well, Victoria Houston, given that it's um, almost guaranteed, isn't it, to pass through Parliament, we're in for one hell of a ride here, if all you well, say is... Well, I, I actually happen. have a little bit more hope now, because I feel like the bill has got so big and so unwieldy that it might actually collapse under its own weight. Well, there we are. Let's see if our MPs do their duty. Indeed. A new mystic Meg here, not <laughs> Neil, Neil Moxley. Thank you very much, Victoria Houston, Head of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Thanks for listening to Real Britain, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a comment. 